God, we are humbled at the fact that you're thinking about us right now, that you're mindful of us, that you're in our midst as we've gathered together. For every person who is your child, your spirit has indwelled us. You are in us, Lord. And I ask this morning as we open your word that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our midst, that you would be opening our eyes to see the truth, that you would open our hearts to receive it and be transformed by it. And God, that you would give us the grace and the courage to walk it out in obedience, that we would be doers of the word, not hearers only. Lord, I ask that you would give glory to yourself by the work that you do as your word is spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's talk about money. Now, some of you, oh man, it, like you might have just got uncomfortable. Let me give one more caveat here. If you're new here, if today's the day that you randomly dropped in and you're like, wow, the first words out of his mouth were let's talk about money as he got into the sermon. If that's you today, let me just calm your nerves by saying this. We are not that church who talks about money all the time. We're not those televangelists on TV. What's happened is we're going through the book of James and right now, this week, we're in James chapter 5, and the start of James chapter 5 starts talking about money. So that's why we're talking about money today. And we are a very financially healthy church. In case you didn't know, the last two years of our church have been among the strongest two financial years in our church's history. So God is blessing our church, and things are going well. This is not some talk that's like, Things aren't going well and people aren't giving, so let's talk about money. I'm not even going to be really talking about giving money to the church. I'm just going into what James is talking about today. So, that's fun. Having said that, today we're primarily going to be talking about how money is neutral. It's not good or evil. The love of money is damning. Gospel generosity and missional living Guard our hearts from the love of money or the trust in money. If you haven't picked up on those cues, we're in James chapter 5 today, so open your Bible if you're not there already. James chapter 5, we're going to be starting in verse 1 today, continuing on in this series through the book of James. That This is week 10. We got one more week in the book of James. We've turned this letter into 11 weeks when I originally thought it was going to be 6. <laughs> James chapter 5, verse 1, James says this. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James, once more showing us how sensitive he is to not offending people and how much he cares about sugarcoating things. James does not give a rip about sugarcoating things, as he proves once more here, as we look again at that verse 1 where he says, Come now, you rich, weep 
and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, right away, this verse ought to make our knees knock a little bit. Because I've said it before, I'll say it again. For those of us, you might be hearing this, and you might go, oh, okay, well, he hasn't really said anything that applies to me yet because he's talking about rich people, and I'm not rich. There are people maybe here who are rich, or there's other people that are rich, but I'm not rich. I'm living paycheck to paycheck, so this doesn't really apply to me. Now listen, whether you live paycheck to paycheck, maybe you even have had to utilize food stamps or some government aid in that way, or maybe you go to the working family bread basket that's here every Saturday morning to get food for your family, or maybe you've had to go to other food pantries or whatever it is, even if that's the case, if you live in America, you're rich compared to the rest of the world. And the the case in point being that those things I just said, even though you might feel like you're not rich compared to others, even though you might not feel like you are rich because of paycheck-to-paycheck living and bills that have you stressed out, If you are not yet wondering how you're going to eat, you're rich. Now, there are people in our country who do feel that. By and large, though, almost the overwhelming majority of us are rich because we live in America and we can work and acquire and do what we can. Most of us who don't feel rich or feel like we are not rich feel that way because of Uh, the culture's teaching and training and expectations of what riches look like, that it looks like the lavish lifestyle, wherein, again, if you look and compare your life to most around the world, the overwhelming majority, that we are rich. So now, in light of that, I'll say this, this passage is actually not aimed solely at the rich, declaring all rich people to be evil. Rather, this passage is confronting the ungodly rich, those whose primary love is their money, whose primary trust is their money, whose primary hope is in their money, those whom use their power, influence, and money to oppress and take advantage of those who have less. That is the group that James is talking about this morning Notice in verse 2, he said this, Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Here is the first point where we see he's addressing the ungodly rich. James is not here today trying to say, if you're rich, you are ungodly and condemned. Actually, we can see in Scripture, in the book of Acts, we can hear about the lady named Lydia, who was very wealthy. The Bible says that she was a seller of purple goods. And if you're not shored up on uh, ancient Near Eastern history and in church history, if someone was a seller of purple goods, that meant they were wealthy. They had a lot of money because purple was a color that was rare. They had to capture mollusks and and secrete the, the ink from those mollusks 
And so purple was reserved solely for the wealthy and the rich. And if you sold purple goods, you were wealthy and rich. So there are people in the Bible that are accounted as being wealthy and godly. And this woman, Lydia, she used her large home as a gathering place for church and for gospel work and for training people up that the, God, that the apostles could come and teach people. So this message is not saying you cannot be rich and godly. But what I will also say is this. Scripture does make it clear that being godly and rich is a lot harder And the reason is, is because that money and riches make it easier for us to accumulate and acquire all the things that our society is telling us are the things that will make us happy. When you are rich, like us, it is easier for you to place your hope, your joy, your pleasure, your delight, your trust in all these things. And I think about that many times, if you've ever been on a missionary trip to a third world country, you, you go these places where people have nothing, where they're living in huts and they are legitimately wondering about their next meal. And you find these people with way more joy than us rich Americans. Why? Because they're not buying into the lie that they just need one more thing to be happy. They're not buying into the American culture lies that you have to keep up with the Joneses, and if you don't, your life is incomplete. Rather, they have learned, because they have no other choice, but to be content in the state that they're in. This is why Paul says to the Philippians, I've learned in whatever state I'm in to be content, whether I abound or abase, whether I'm wealthy or poor, I've learned in whatever state I am in to be content. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. Saying I can be content with much or with little. Why? Because I've got Christ and he's all that matters. So this is the first point wherein we see he's addressing the ungodly rich by revealing to them the place that they have placed their hope, their trust, their joy. And saying, your gold, your silver is corroded. Your fine linens are being destroyed by moths. He's pointing out the weaknesses and the flaws of what these people have poured all their resources, all their effort, all their energy, all their hope into. He's revealing, hey, this is (laughs) the stuff that you are aiming your whole life around. It's all crumbling and destroying. And oh, by the way, one day you're going to die and you can't take it with you anyways. You can't take it with you. He says, You've rot- your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. You have laid up treasures in the last days. This verse also really makes me think of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where he says to the massive crowd, in verse 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whereas James has helped us so far in his first four chapters for us in the book of James, where he's helped us so far see that, Our actions reveal whether or not we have genuine faith. He's helped us see that our speech reveals whether or not we have genuine faith. Do we use our words to lift others up or to tear others down? That is a litmus proof of whether or not we have genuine faith in Christ. He goes on now to point out 
that our money reveals whether or not we have genuine faith in Christ. In fact, that's one thing I want us to see today, that genuine faith is revealed in our relationship to money. In the opening weeks of the book of James, we heard and saw that genuine faith is revealed by what we do or don't do. Faith without works is dead. Don't be hearers of the word only, but be doers also. And then we go on to read about the power of the tongue and how we ought not use it to destroy, but to build others up, showing again that genuine faith in Jesus Christ is evidenced in our speech, in the way that we talk to one another, that we build one another up and encourage one another and exhort one another rather than gossip and backbite and slander and tear down. Genuine faith is seen in our words. Once more now, James is saying also, hey, genuine faith is seen in the way that you use your money. James here is echoing the teachings of his brother, his half-brother, Jesus. Now, Jesus, whether or not James was present at the Sermon on the Mount, he at least was very familiar with it. And he's echoing the same exact sentence, or the same sentiments you hear in that statement by Jesus saying, don't lay up the treasures for, for yourself here on earth where moth and rust and thieves can take, steal, and destroy. Rather, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. James is saying, hey, your gold and silver, it's corrupted. Your fine linens are being eaten by moths. I think there's an intentional connection that James is drawing here. Jesus essentially saying to all of us, hey, why would you place all your hope in things here and now when they can be lost? Why would you invest all your time, effort, and energy into things that you will not have the day you die? And even if you don't have faith in Christ, the best you can hope for that Ecclesiastes would teach us is that all this empire that you built with your time, effort, and energy to build up all this wealth, the, the, the brilliant scholar Solomon, the brilliant teacher Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes would tell us, like, all you can do when you die then is hope that whoever you left it to doesn't just waste it. That even if you try and use godly principles to build wealth or, or, or to manage your money in, in, in a godly way and you, God blesses you to where your, your wealth does grow, even at that point you're leaving it and you're just crossing your fingers hoping that it's continued to be used in a God-honoring way. Hoping that it's not wasted or uh, spent on frivolous things. So why would we not place our hope or our treasure, moreover, where it cannot be touched, where it cannot be corrupted, where it cannot be stolen or taken away from us. So how do we do that? By storing up treasure in heaven. One of my favorite verses out of the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus is teaching in parables. And he says to them, he says to the people he's talking to, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. You've heard me say this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field that a man finds and for joy over what he found, hides it, buries it again, goes and sells all that he has, all that he has, so that he has enough to buy the field and gain the treasure. Jesus is trying to use this parable to show us that the true treasure 
of life. The true treasure of our existence is not more money, more possessions, bigger house, better car, more resources, more toys, more vacations, more bells and whistles. No, the true treasure of our existence that is worthy of the highest pursuit, that is worthy of seeing and go, there is nothing in my life that compares to this, is the kingdom of God. I would say Jesus Christ himself. That's why Paul was able to say to the Philippians, I'm able to be content in whatever state I'm in, whether I'm rich or poor. I've learned to do all these things because I can do these things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be content if I'm poor. I can be grateful and try and use it for God's purposes if I'm rich. Why? Because Jesus is my treasure, not the stuff. See, for the person who's, who sees Jesus as the ultimate treasure in their life, not just a person who knows the Bible says that, but the person who has had that truth sink down into their heart to where it comes out in the way that they live, that person handles money, possessions, and things like that different than everyone else. They do things that the world looks at and goes, that's foolish. Why would you give 10% of your money to church? That's stupid. That's 10% you could put in savings. That's 10% you could put into investments and get a return on your investment. That's money that you could do other things with, like help other people or whatever. Why would you take money and give it to someone that you know is in need when you could be looking out for number one? Why would you do these things giving your resources away instead of storing up to make sure, like you look at the turmoil around the world, shouldn't you maybe hold on to a little bit more in case the metaphorical poop really hits the fan? Like, don't you really want to make sure that you're safe? And Jesus and James both together are saying, no, the hope, the answer, the treasure is not in the here and now. Our treasure is in heaven. And we are in a dangerous place. You've heard me say this before. Friends, we live in the most dangerous place in the world. You're going, no, Stephen, I mean, you just mentioned Afghanistan. The Taliban's there. They, they'll arrest, capture, torture, kill people. Like, that's more dangerous. In a physical sense, yes, it is. There are other places where churches are hiding and meeting underground. There are places where they're, they're worried that they're going to be arrested and or killed. That, that those are the places where it's more dangerous. And I totally understand, in one sense, how that is true and why we would think that way. We live in the most dangerous place in the world because we can have anything and everything we want. We can work harder and make more money and buy more things. And all these pacifiers in America are readily accessible to where when this one's shiny over here and goes, oh, that's the one I need. Let me go ahead and ah, finally. All these toys and trinkets and pacifiers that lie to us, telling us, I am what will finally fulfill you. If you only had this, if you could only finally find the special someone, if you could only get a better car, if, you, Stephen, you could finally get a pickup truck, if you could get that bigger house, if you, could, if you could finally get the better job or get the raise or the promotion or if you could whatever, all these lying pacifier carrots that our society dangles in front of our face through marketing, 
through peer pressure, through comparing ourselves to the Joneses, robbing us of joy in Christ and contentment in him. So what does it look like practically here and now? What does it look like to treasure Christ above all these other things? What does it look like? It looks like at least using our resources in this life, not just money, but at least our money, and especially our money, in such a way that it is clear that our hope, our joy, our prize, our retirement, our return on investment, so to speak, are both spiritual and eternal. You're being watched. People look at our lives. And if people got into our lives, into our schedule, into our bank accounts, into our finances, into our decisions, would our lives say to others that Jesus Christ is our treasure? Or would they look in our lives and see that our hobbies are our treasure, or our kids are our treasure, or our jobs are our treasure, or that our money is our treasure? I think Pastor John Piper has masterfully explained or detailed how money is given to us, that we would use it in such a way that it is clear to those around us that money is not our treasure, but Christ is. He would go on to say that cars are given to us, that we would use them in such a way that it is clear to those around us that cars are not our treasure, but Christ is. Families are given to you by God that you would lead and serve and love and steward your family in such a way that it is clear that your family is a gift but not your treasure, Christ is. Jobs, friends, hobbies, joys in this life, anything and everything you can imagine is given to us by a good and gracious and generous God that we would use them in such a way that makes it clear to those around us that those things are not our treasure, but Christ is. I consider that when we get to heaven, whatever day that may be for any of us, all of us, not any of us, all of us, all of our day will come. And I think about the day for the believer, for the child of God who's been saved by the grace of God, that day when we get to heaven. And the Bible paints a picture for us of heaven as having streets of gold and gates made out of pearl. And we can imagine these details and how wonderfully beautiful these material elements of heaven would be. Yet even still, these precious metals and materials and their adornments and beauty are only going to serve as the background environment to the eternal, true beauty and worth of the glory of Jesus Christ. I try to imagine, and I wish you would too, what it will be like to get there on that day. And we imagine getting there and you can think, man, what would streets of gold be like? That would be Beautiful and amazing. Follow the yellow brick road quite literally, I guess. What would it look like, these adorned, beautiful pearl gates, yet to not quickly thereafter, or or yet to quickly thereafter, get through those gates and to find our way 
To see the glorified, resurrected Jesus Christ wherein all those beautiful adornments and or any beautiful thing you will have ever seen in your existence all becomes background noise against the backdrop of the glory of Jesus Christ. It takes faith in God's word to try to imagine that. And I hope and pray that you do, and I ask that the Holy Spirit would awaken in all of us a hunger for that day. Many of you may or may not have heard of a very famous pastor, scholar, theologian, teacher, apologist named Pastor Tim Keller, who just passed away on Saturday. What a brilliant mind, what a, what a wonderful worker for the kingdom of God. I will miss him, and I'm saddened at that. But I recall reading about the conversations he had with his family on Thursday night before he passed on Friday morning. And to his kids, he said, I'm so excited to see Jesus. What a beautiful picture of a man who's been battling pancreatic cancer for a few years, the brutal suffering that he faced and he's laying there in his bed with his loved ones around them, around him. And he just sits there going, I'm so excited to see Jesus. The treasure of his life. And I want that in my heart now. Don't you? My hope and prayer is that we would not be distracted or seduced or pulled away by all the little shiny bells and whistles wherein we go, that sounds great, but hang on a minute. Because this is shiny, or this is fun, or this is nice. Could we now, by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit, have that taste of the glory to come to go, man, yeah, this stuff, it's got nice, this, this world has got nice things, and, and God has made so many beautiful things for us to enjoy, and he's given us so much beauty and wonder to take in, but all of it, man, it's just, it, 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 it fades when compared to Jesus. One more time, I'm going to pull out that good old song of turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace what beautiful truth I think about where Paul told the Corinthians that the more we behold him we are changed from glory to glory saying the more that we look at Jesus, the more we look like Jesus. And the more that we look at Jesus, the more we long for Jesus. It's like that person that you're crushing on and you start getting to know them. And the more you get to know them, the more you want to get to know them. You're like, I just want to spend more time with them. And it's not like, oh, more time. It's like, no, I, I want to get things out of my life that get in the way of me and that person. I'm saying a lot of things off script today. I just believe that the Holy Spirit is drawing us trying to cast our eyes off of unworthy things in our life. James and Jesus are both telling us that the things of this world are not worthy of the throne of your heart. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. May our hearts be hungry for Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit to stir your affections for Jesus. Say, Lord, I want to want you like that. I don't want to wait till cancer deathbed, and I don't think Tim Keller did, but I don't want to wait till cancer deathbed to say I'm so excited to see Jesus. I want to say that today. And I want it to be true in my heart today. And if there are days that I don't feel that, I need to go, Lord, I know by your word that you are worthy. Lord, I know that you're the treasure. Lord, I know that you're more precious and valuable than anything that I could see or long for or want. And I don't feel that right now. Would you stir my affections for you? Jesus, would you help me see you the way that you are so that I will be hungry for you and want you above all the things in this world? Another point where we see James is talking about the ungodly rich in this text is verse four where he says, behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud. They are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. See, the godly rich do not use their resources to take advantage of others. Rather, they see themselves as conduits of the grace, mercy, generosity, and provision of God. I think about, Jan- uh, about Abraham where God said, I will bless you and make you a blessing. And you will be a blessing is what he told him. James goes on to say, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James giving one more element to reveal again, if money causes you to do underhanded things, to cheat or to oppress or take advantage of, to continue to accumulate and build for yourself, you don't know the Lord. You say you don't have genuine faith in Christ. I think a lot of pastors and scholars and theologians have pointed out very well and aptly that Jesus talked about money more than he talked about heaven or hell. Why? I think he talked about money more than those things because he recognizes the proneness of our hearts to long for stuff. I think he knows the proneness of the sinful heart to be discontent. This is why we have the story in the Gospels of the rich young ruler where the guy comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments, don't you? He says, yeah, I do, and I've I've obeyed them all pretty well. And Jesus says to this rich young ruler, you're right, you actually have one thing you lack, though, that you would sell all that you have, give it to the poor, then you you can have riches in heaven and come follow me. And what does it say about that rich young ruler? It says, and he went away sad because he had great possessions. The disciples see this and they go, wow, this is, this is rough. And Jesus says to them, very hard is it. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And the disciples are distraught by this. They're going, man, how can anyone? And Jesus says, well, with God, all things are possible. Even the impossible, even the rich can get to heaven. But it's an uphill battle. I hope by the grace of God we can see 
You and me have an uphill battle in staying faithful to the Lord because of where we live and how accessible money and resources are to us. How do we fight that? By training our hearts to be generous. By training our hearts to go, man, I've got something that God has given me as a steward. It's not mine anyways. God, how can I use this for your purposes and for your glory? See, the more that we use gospel generosity, wherein we're grateful for the extreme generosity of God, wherein he has forgiven our sins, letting that same generosity flow into our hearts where we go, man, I know of somebody in my life who's going through hardship. What can I do to help them? Man, God has blessed me and there's someone else who's struggling. Can I help them out? A couple times in the last few months, I've had people reach out to me saying, hey, I heard about so-and-so who's struggling and I've got more than enough right now is there a way you can help me bless them without them knowing it's from me? And I'm going, that's awesome. That's, a, that's the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, hey, when you do your good deeds, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Rather, do your good deeds in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. People going, someone's in need. I've got resources Pastor, can you help me get it to them where they don't know it's from me so that I can be obedient to God and bless them and they will be grateful to God and not to me? How beautiful. What if our lives were driven by trying to do things that no one would ever see? What if we, instead of trying to make sure people knew of our generosity, that we did everything we could to hide it so that we're doing it to live before God's eyes and please him? See, money, from a worldly perspective, creates opportunity for the flesh. It creates opportunity for knitting of our hearts to the world. Conversely, money for the believer, the child of God, who's had their heart transformed by the grace of God, this lavish grace, for that person, money creates an opportunity for gospel advancement. Money creates an opportunity for service and love and care and support and aid, or as James said earlier, caring for the widow and the orphan. Money is not good or bad. Money is a neutral tool. It is the heart of the possessor, the heart of the person who possesses money that determines whether money will be used for selfish gain or for kingdom purposes. And James here is echoing the teachings of his brother Jesus, trying to show us that the answer to guarding our hearts from evil with riches is to care for the widow and orphan, to help those who are in need, to be a conduit for gospel ministry, to be a sender of the message. And the more that we practice giving and living generously, the more our heart is disconnected from the love of this world. The more that we see this corroding gold and silver for what it is, the more we see these frail, feeble, moth-eaten linens for what they are, fleeting pacifiers that will not come with us when we go into eternity. Why is it that we want to use our money in a way that the world would deem foolish? Why is it that we should focus our resources on others and the gospel spreading and helping those who are in need? Because our treasure is not here and now. Our treasure is greater than the world's treasure. And our treasure is in heaven. 
And you're not arguing with me if you disagree. You're arguing with Jesus who said, lay up treasure in heaven. Our worth is not in what we own or what we have achieved or accomplished. Our worth is in the costly, priceless, precious blood of Christ that was shed to buy our freedom. All other pursuits are temporal and therefore less worthy than him. And as we go on in the book of James, we see his, his encouragement, not only his warning to the rich, but his encouragement to those who are suffering. And I'll read this really quickly as we close. In James chapter 5, verse 7, he said this, Be patient, therefore, brothers. Talking now again to Christians. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. (laughs) Seeing how the farmer waits for precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Yet you also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. He's calling us to be encouraged in our suffering by looking to the end. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He's talking about Old Testament prophets. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Talking about the purpose of God in Job's suffering. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. How does James warn the rich and encourage the suffering in one fell swoop? By casting our eyes onto the truth that Jesus is coming back. To the rich, he says, hey, Your judgment is coming because you have trusted in money and abused and oppressed other people and taken advantage of them for money. And the judge is coming. To those of you who are suffering and going through hardship, the judge is coming. And he's coming to redeem and buy back and save us and set us free. Be faithful like those prophets who endured suffering in the days of old. Consider Job who suffered greatly. And not only consider Job, but consider the purposes of God in Job's suffering. And like Job, may we be faithful and steadfast and say, man, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Either way, blessed be the name of the Lord. May I be content with what I have or don't have. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because he's given me treasure in himself and all this other stuff that lies to me saying I need that or that's what I need to be happy or I'll finally be content if I can just that. It's lies, it's pacifiers, Jesus is the treasure. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us now as a foretaste of the glory to come. Your suffering shall pass. Consider the purposes of God in it. 
and how he may be working in your heart and in your life. Job couldn't see it in the midst of his suffering. We have the hindsight of looking back at Job's story and we can go, oh wow, God blessed Job with even more than he had before. And similarly, the gospel message is the same for us, not based on money, but based on this, that whatever we might lose or feel in our suffering will not compare to the glory that is to come. And it is keeping our eyes locked on the prize of Jesus Christ where Paul also told the Philippians, man, whatever things are behind me, I forget them and I'm pressing on to what? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, your best life is not now. Your best life is not now. I don't care what the New York Times bestseller said. Your best life is yet to come. Let's live as if that is true. Let's see the lies for what they are. And again, as your pastor, I feel like one of my greatest responsibilities is to call you to cast your eyes off of the glint of fool's gold. And to call our eyes up to the true treasure that is Christ, I need this preached to me just as much as I want to preach it to you. I am tempted to place my hope in material things just like you are. I have to preach this to myself often. I ask my wife to preach it to me. I ask you to preach it to me because the things of this world try and seduce me. Let's live this day in light of that day. Why? Because our worth is not in what we own. It's not in what we can achieve or accomplish. But our worth, our value, is in the blood of Jesus Christ.
sol. 